The Rambam in Hilchot Shuvah, Perek Aleph Halacha Gimel, not on your sheets, um, as he begins to describe the process of tshuva under the context of the laws of tshuva, and really uh, what became clear to me this year, I've, ne- I've never seen it so clearly as, uh, as I did this year, um, is Rambam's Hilchot Shuvah is really a, about a philosophy of man's relationship with God. It's an extraordinary thing. You, know, you, you think you're reading the halachot of tshuva, and very little of it is really halacha. Most of it is really philosophy of man's relationship with God. Worthwhile reading and reading again and reading again and again because he's got so much that's built in there. Anyway, in the context of describing, the, describing teshuva and kapara, atonement, teshuva meaning repentance and kapara um, meaning atonement, Rambam writes as follows, Bizman hazeh, nowadays, she'ein beit hamikdash kayam, that there is no longer a beit hamikdash, there is no longer a temple, ve'ein lanu mizbeach kapara, and there is no longer a um, an altar for atonement. Ein sham ela teshuva. All we have left is repentance. Ha teshuva mechaperet al kol ha'averot. Repentance atones for all sins. Continues. And then says, And the essence of the day of Yom HaKippurim, The essence of the day itself um, brings atonement for those who do Teshuvah. For the, the Pasuk says, For on this day or through this day, you will, you will achieve atonement. It's an interesting comment, an interesting statement about the difference between um, the process of atonement during the time that the temple stood and the process of atonement today. And yet, I don't know how, how it works. How does that work that the essence of the day brings atonement to those people who repent? What does that mean? The essence of the day? Meaning, here's a day and I sort of just pass through it? And as a result of my passing through the day... I've done Teshuvah. I did Teshuvah three months ago. And now, I'm just waiting for the day of Yom Kippur to come. And I passed through Yom Kippur. Now I'm cleansed. How does that work? Um, so what I'd like to do, and I'd like to spend um, the first uh, chunk um, of our time here this evening, is to begin a little bit of a tour through the second half of the book of Exodus. Because I believe that, the, that this question, on some level is addressed there, and then we're going to expand our, uh, our view a little bit. If you take a look at the sheets you have in front of you, we're going to start our tour, basically, with Sefer Shemot, Exodus, chapter 17. The incident that's described there is an incident that comes soon after the Jewish people leave Egypt. They came through the Red Sea, the sea, the sea parted, um, they complained that they didn't have any food, perfectly reasonable complaint. You took us out, now... You're the tour guide, so where's the catering? Um, brought us out on, into the desert, and uh, food comes. God arranges for food. And then the next complaint comes, we need water. Okay. God goes and provides for water. Moshe has an interesting response, though, to the people's complaint for water. God does not seem upset by it whatsoever. He says, you want food, food and water? Okay, I'll give you food and water. But when it comes to the complaint of water, Moshe's response 
at the very, very end of that passage, and I brought for you just one verse, and in, it's on page number one, um, selection number one, source number one. Moshe, after the incident, calls the place Vayikrashim Hamakom Masa Umriva. Moshe afterwards called the place Masa and Meriva. Okay, Masa meaning some kind of test, and Meriva meaning some kind of argument. Why? Why do you call it Masa Umriva? I'll read B'nai Yisrael, because B'nai Yisrael quarreled apparently with God, or maybe with Moshe. The Al Nasotam et Hashem, and because they tested God. Moshe understood something that the text doesn't reveal to us. What the text reveals to us is that they complained about water. And God said, you're right. You need water. I'll provide for you water. But apparently there was something else going on there at the same time. And Moshe picked up on that. And Moshe didn't name the place water, and didn't name the place anything having to do with water. Moshe names the place Masa Umriva because Moshe understands that there's something else going on behind the scenes, that they are somehow or other testing God. And now we get to the final line over here. They were testing God, saying, Is God amongst us or not? Is the presence of God within us or not? That's how Moshe understood the background behind the complaint for water. I don't know where Moshe got that from. The text gives us no clues. And yet, Moshe clearly understood that. That question, I believe, and this is what we're going to focus on in in the first major section that we're going to study this evening. Um, I believe that this is the question that drives the rest of the book of Shemot. Hayesh Hashem Bikir Beinuim Ayin is the presence of God amongst us or not? And that is the big question of the rest of the book of Exodus. It often gets overlooked because it's swallowed up. There's one line that's swallowed up between the stories of the complaining for food and water on the one hand and the stories afterwards of Amalek and Yitro and Matan Torah on the other hand. We've got this one line in there, five words, is the presence of God within us. Hayesh Hashem Bikir Beinu Im Ayin. Let's move and see a little bit more how this develops. This story happens in a place called Rifidim. The story is, is introduced to us at the beginning of chapter 17 that the Jewish people came to Rifidim. It's at Rifidim that they complained for water. The next time we hear about Rifidim is actually in, um, um, in the, the story of Amalek. And then we go to... I'm skipping... Skip one chapter, which is the story of Yitro, and then we get to the beginning of chapter 19. Chapter 19 is the parak that describes the introduction to Matan Torah. It's the introduction to the scene, the great revelation at Mount Sinai. Now, between you and me, the revelation at Mount Sinai came as a surprise to the Jewish people. They were not expecting that. If you were to take a look at everything God says to Moshe and everything Moshe tells the Jewish people in Egypt, there was nothing about receiving the Torah. Thank you. All the discussion was about you're leaving Egypt and you're going to Israel. God is coming to fulfill the promise he made to Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. What was that promise? The promise was after 400 years in exile, I'm going to take you out of here and I'm bringing you back to the land of Canaan. 
That's the journey. That's what everybody was expecting. The detour at Har Sinai came as a surprise to everybody. Maybe even to Moshe himself. When they come to Har Sinai, the Chumash describes its following, and now I'm in source number two. Vayis'u merifidim. They went from Rifidim. Oh, I know what Rifidim is. Rifidim is the place where Moshe understood the Jewish people asking the question, is God within us or not? Chapter 19 picks up. Vayis'u merifidim. They moved from Rifidim. Vayavu midbar Sinai. And they arrived at the, the wilderness of Sinai. And they encamped there in the desert, right opposite the mountain. Moshe ascended the mountain, the mountain of God. God calls to him from the mountain and says, This is what I want you to tell the house of Jacob and the, and the people of Israel. You saw what I did to the Egyptians. And I carried you on eagles' wings. And I brought you here to me. So now, if you listen to my voice and, and are faithful to my covenant, you will become a special treasure to me more than any other nation. I mean, the whole world is mine, but I'm going to choose to take you as my special treasure if you adhere to my covenant. And then, then you will become for me a mamlechet kohanim, a nation of priests, the goy kadosh, and the holy nation. So this is what God wants Moshe to deliver to the people. He's actually offering them something. It's very interesting, and there's no parallel to it anywhere else in the Chumash. Usually when you hear, um, if you follow the mitzvot, then X. What we're used to hearing afterwards, and if you don't follow the mitzvot, then Oivavai. There is no, if you don't follow. This is simply an offer. I call this a free upgrade. Right? God has established a covenantal relationship with Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. That covenantal relationship meant that after a certain number of years in exile, the Jews are going to be returned to their land. Okay? And when they're returned to their land, the deal is over. You fulfilled your half, you suffered in exile. I fulfilled my half, I brought you back home. Wonderful. Shalom al Yisrael. Have a nice life. Right? That's, that's the covenantal promise to the forefathers. What God brings, what does when he brings the Jewish people to the foot of Mount Sinai, he offers them an upgrade. Guess what? If you are prepared to keep a new covenant, then I will transform you into a special nation. I will transform you into what's called a mamlechet kohanim, the goy kadosh, a holy nation, a nation of priests, a, a nation that's going to be special to me. That's what I'm offering to you. If you don't accept it, okay. <laughs> yeah, there's no threat. There's, it's a free offer. Take it, leave it. It's a, if you don't want to take it, I'll, I'll 
finish what I have to do, I'll bring it to the land of Israel, just like I promised, to Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, and then we're done. But now I'm offering you something new. This reminds me a little bit of um, a classical Hasidic story. Uh, I've since learned that the story may have origins that are older even than Hasidut itself. But I, I was raised hearing this is a classical Hasidic story about the Hasidic Sherebi who, um, if he put his hand on yours, he could tell you what you had in your hand. Some of you have heard this story, I'm sure. And a little boy, a very smart little boy, decided he was going to test the Rebbe. He took a butterfly and he put a butterfly in his hand. And he came to the Rebbe and he said, Rebbe, what do I have in my hand? The Rebbe put his hand on his and he says, you have a butterfly in there. So he turns to the Rebbe and says, is it alive or dead? If he says it's alive, he'll just squeeze. If he says it's dead, he's going to open up his hand, let the butterfly fly away. The Rebbe looks at him and says, it's in your hands. This is how I understand chapter 19, the opening of chapter 19 in the book of Exodus. God comes to the Jewish people and says, if you accept my offer, you get an upgrade. If not, you go on with your, with, with your lives. What this is, this is the response to the question that the Jewish people asked. Hayesh Hashem ayin. Is the presence of God within us or not? What's God's response? It's in your hands. If you want the presence of God within you, then here's what you have to do. In which case it turns out that the challenge, that Moshe understood the challenge to God of Hayesh Hashem B'Kirbeinu Am'ayim is the presence of God within us or not, turns out to be a challenge that creates opportunity. It was precisely the fact that B'nai Yisrael pushed those buttons that God comes and says, okay, now you're ready. Now you're ready for me to make you an offer. You can refuse. But you ask the question. The answer is in your hands. Here's the offer. To make a long story short, because the long story would take us another hour, and then we wouldn't get to what we need to get to tonight. To make a long story short, by the time we finish, chapter 19, chapter 20, 21, 22, 23, the Jewish people still have not accepted the offer. That's a long story. I just made it really short. No one knows what I'm talking about. Uh, they still have not accepted the offer. Chapter 24. This is after the great revelation on Mount Sinai, after the Ten Commandments, after Parashat Mishpatim. At the end of all of that, when most of us have already gone to sleep because we expect the Haftorah to come, it's the end of Parashat Mishpatim, and nobody pays attention to the last Aliyah of Parashat Mishpatim, it's at that point that actually we come to the moment of the signing of the covenant between God and the Jewish people. Take a look. Source number three. This is chapter 24. Hashem. Moshe writes all the things that God had told him. He gets up early in the morning. He builds an altar at the foot of the mountain. And he also sets up 12 stones, monuments. So it's clear what's, what's happening over here. There's an altar over here. Here, here's my altar. Here's an altar. The altar represents God. 
We have 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of the Jewish people. That's B'nai Yisrael. And Moshe is setting up a covenantal ceremony over here. We have a represent, representative of God, a representative of the Jewish people. Now what does he do? He goes, he um, sends the youth of, of, of B'nai Yisrael. They bring certain kinds of sacrifices. We don't have time to go into that right now. Verse number 6, Pasuk Vav. From the sacrifices, we know that when a sacrifice was brought, they would catch the blood and sprinkle the blood onto the altar. That was actually the most important part of the sacrifice, not the slaughtering of the animal, not the burning of the animal, but actually the sprinkling of, of the blood is the most critical element in any sacrificial process in the Torah. What does Moshe do? He takes half of the blood, and he places it in, in, in pans, so he takes the blood from these animals, he puts half of them into pans, and half of them he sprinkles onto the Mizbeach. Sprinkler onto the Mizbeach is a symbol that God has accepted the covenant. And then he takes the book that's called Sefer Habrit, which he had written that morning. Takes that book, he reads it to the people. And then they say, Everything that God has said, that famous did not happen before the revelation on Mount Sinai. It happens five chapters later. This is the only place in the entire Torah you're going to find five chapters after the revelation on Mount Sinai. They say, At that point, Moshe hears those words, Moshe he takes the blood that he had placed into those pans, and he sprinkles it onto the people, or maybe onto the representative of the people, those twelve stones, and he says, This is the blood of the covenant. So it's a chapter 24 that we finally get an answer to the question that the Jewish people asked way back when they came out of Egypt, right? Hayesh Hashem is the presence of God within us or not? God responds, it's up to you. It took them a little while to figure out how to respond properly to God's offer. It came as a little bit of a, of a surprise, as a shock to them. By the time we hit chapter 24, the covenant is sealed. Amazing. There's a covenant between the Jewish people and God. Okay, so what does that mean then? That means that now it's time for the presence of God to dwell amongst them. Well, what do you think the very next chapter starts to describe? The building of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle in the desert. Natural. Chapter 25, you have it right here on the bottom of page 1. God says, when he gives the instructions, the Asuli Mikdash, let them make for me a sanctuary, Vishachanti Bitocham, so that I may dwell amongst them. Very simple. We've completed the circle. The circle that started at, in the middle of chapter 17 finally comes complete here in chapter 25. And then, if that weren't enough, if that Pasuk weren't enough to sort of confirm for us what the function of this Mishkan is, soon afterwards, after we begin describing the very first of the vessels that are going to be placed into this Mishkan, which is the Aron. The Aron is going to contain the tablets. 
in the Tablets of the Covenant, verse 22 in that same chapter, God says, Adati lecha sham. I will meet with you there. That is the place where I, God, will convene, will meet, will speak with you, Moshe, and I will continue to instruct you, I will continue the relationship between me and the Jewish people. This same theme is confirmed at the end of the whole process of the construction of the Mishkan, which you'll see at the top of the next page. Source number five is at the very end. After we're finished, told about all the different vessels that go inside and how to construct the walls and how to construct the curtains and the vessels that go outside and the outer courtyard and the Kohanim and how they're to be inaugurated and the various clothes that they are to wear and the Kohen Gadol and how he's different. And after all of that, chapter 29, God says, I will meet there with the Israelites, v'nikdash b'chvodi, and it will be sanctified with my presence. We've come full circle. Jewish people start by asking, is God within us or not? God said, it's in your hands. They finally say, yes, we want the presence of God within us. And God says, okay, build me the sanctuary so that my presence will dwell amongst you. And Interestingly, in that, in that pasuk, um, in verse 43 that we just read, the top of, of page 2, um, that, the, the, the phrasing of v'nikdash b'chvodi, and it will be sanctified by my presence, can be read in two ways. It could be that the building will be sanctified with my presence, or it could be that the Jewish people will be sanctified with my presence. Okay? The, and the rest of this passage... I'll, I'll just read it quickly. I will sanctify the, the, um, the tent of meeting, the altar, Aaron, his sons. Um, I will sanctify them to me, my priests. I will dwell amongst the Jewish people. Again, that sense of completion of the circle. And I will be their God. And they will know they will know that I am the God who took them out of Egypt so that I may dwell amongst them. The question that they asked was the question that God was waiting for them to ask. It wasn't the question of chutzpah the way Moshe understood it. It was a question of yearning. Can we have the presence of God dwelling amongst us? Okay. That's brings us to the end of the story of the construction of the Mishkan. Except that it doesn't. Because very soon afterwards, beginning of chapter 32, um, Moshe is still up on the mountain. Up on the mountain, he's been learning all about this stuff. And uh, something terrible happens. Jewish people get tired of waiting for Moshe. They don't know exactly when he's supposed to come back. And uh, they make for themselves a golden calf and they begin dancing around it. Moshe prays. God tells him about this. Moshe prays. And after pleading with God 
finally, as in source number six, we read this just a couple of days ago, Tzom Gedalia, every fast day we read this passage, uh, Moshe prays, he beseeches God on behalf of the people, please, please, you know, why should the Egyptians be able to say, and finally, just jump to the last line, the last line, verse 14, so God renounced the punishment he had planned to bring upon his people. He had threatened to destroy them. He says, no, I'm not going to destroy them. Okay, great. Big sigh of relief. End of the story, right? Something weird happens afterwards. Moshe comes down the mountain, does all sorts of strange things. He gets angry with the people. He gets angry with Aaron. He destroys the golden calf. He grinds it up. He, makes, he puts the ground-up calf into water. He makes them drink. He sends out B'nai Levi to go and kill all the people who are directly involved in the process. And after all that, after all that, Moshe turns to the people and says, you know, you did something bad. i got to go back upstairs and take care of this. I must be missing something. I, I thought God already said that he's not going to destroy the people. At the end of, of, of passage 6, verse 14, God renounced the evil, the punishment he had planned to bring upon his people. The next morning, after Moshe does all this stuff, source number seven is the, con- the end of that chapter. On the next morning, Moshe tells the people, You have sinned a very terrible sin. Now let me go back up to God. Maybe I can atone for your sin. And Moshe turns, goes to God, Vayashuv Moshe al Hashem, Vayomer Anna, Chata Amazechata Agdola, Vayasulahem Elohei Zahav, says, Please God, they've, they've done something very terrible. They made for themselves a, 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 um, a God made of, of gold. Vyata Imti Sachatatam, if you are prepared to, to, um, to forgive them, then fine. Vim Ayin, and if you're not prepared to forgive them, Mecheni Nami Sifrachashar Katafta. So you erased me from your book. I thought God already said that he's not going to destroy them. God doesn't say that. God turns to Moshe and says, The only ones I'm going to wipe out of my book are those who sinned. Now, go down, tell the people, Go down and guide the people to the place I'm telling you to go. And I'm some later day, then I will hold them accountable for their sin. What's going on over here? God already said, I forgive you. Why does Moshe need to go back up the mountain? And Moshe comes down with an answer that he's, he's not satisfied with. Not only is Moshe not satisfied with this, the people are not satisfied with this. That we will see on top of the next page. The continuation. I just, the, right, the bottom of page 2 is the end of chapter 32. The top of page 3 is the beginning of chapter 33. 
It's the very next passage. God tells Moshe, go down to the people, and the people that you took out of Mitzrayim, there's a lot of playing that goes back and forth. God keeps telling Moshe that your people, you took them out of Egypt. Moshe keeps saying, no God, they're your people, you took them out of Egypt. God says, get out of here, leave. You, the people that you took out of Egypt, time to go to the land that I promised. The Avraham, the Yitzchak, the Yaakov, go back to that land, the place that I promised. I will send an angel in front of you to guide the way. And that angel will chase away the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. El Ered Zavat Chalavudvash, a land flowing with milk and honey. Kilo Elebikir Bechavad. I'm not going with you. You guys can't handle me. You're too stubborn. I'm going to come dwell amongst you. I'll destroy you in a second. You won't survive. When the people heard that, they went into mourning. The story that we have then is the story that begins with the Jewish people saying, asking the question, Is the presence of God amongst us or not? Ultimately, they accept upon themselves the covenant that God offers, and God says, yes, the presence of God is going to be amongst you. And since you've accepted the covenant, now you've got to make me a nice little place to stay, so that I can be amongst you. If you want to see a really beautiful um, um, explication of that. If you take a look at page 4, the very, very top of page 4, Ramban, Nachmanides, one of the really great commentators on, uh, on the Torah, he writes as follows, and we have the Hebrew and the English, I'll, I'll just read the English just to save a little bit of time here. When this is his introduction to his commentary on the building of the Mishkan. He writes as follows, and this, I edited it just, uh, just a little bit. When God spoke to Israel face to face the Ten Commandments and instructed via Moshe, so that's few, which resent, represent major categories of mitzvot, just as our sages did with potential converts, and Israel accepted upon themselves to do whatever would be commanded via Moshe, and on this foundation he established a covenant with Israel, what Ramban has just done, he's reviewed chapter 19 and 20, actually 19, 20, all the way through chapter 24. They accepted the covenant, so that from now on, they would be his nation, and he would be their God. Now they're sanctified. It's appropriate that there should be in their midst a sanctuary for the presence of God to dwell amongst them. And that's why his first command was to build that sanctuary that there should be a house dedicated to God. It is there that God will speak with Moshe and continue to instruct the Israelites. Okay? Ramban understands in a global view what's happening over here in the book of Exodus. God establishing a covenant with the Jewish people, one that will allow for the Jewish people to get what they really want. And as um, Abraham Heschel would say, uh, maybe allow God to get what he wants to. Right? God in search of man. Right? Where you have man in search of God, 
and God in search of man, and now we have the wedding canopy. That mishkan, that tabernacle, is the wedding canopy. Here's the problem. The problem is that on the wedding night, the bride ran off with the butler. On the wedding night, they're still waiting for Moshe to come down from the mountain with two tablets to present to them. The two tablets of the covenant, he's got the wedding gift or the wedding ring. He's bringing it down from the mountain. Hasn't come down as yet. And on his way down, the Kala is busy dancing around the golden calf. Moshe comes down the mountain, the wedding gift is smashed. The tablets of the covenant are smashed. So Moshe has won from God the fact that, that God is not going to destroy the people. That's wonderful. What kind of marriage are they going to have? And that's what God says. I'm not going with you. I'm going to keep the promise I made to your ancestors. I'm going to bring you back to the land. Don't worry about that. I make a promise. I keep my promises. But I am not going with you. I'll send somebody else to take care of all the arrangements. There's an ambassador. Don't worry. He'll take care of everything. But don't expect me to come with you. The Mishkan and everything that the Mishkan stood for is now gone the Jewish people go into mourning. The presence of God is not with us. They go into mourning. And Moshe goes into negotiation. Moshe doesn't take this lying down. The rest of chapter 33 is Moshe turning to God and pleading with God over and over and over again. And he keeps asking for different kinds of things. But fundamentally, what he keeps asking for over and over again is the presence of God going to come with us again. Take a look on, uh, on source number 9. Yeah, on page 3. Vayomer Moshe Hashem. Moshe turns to God and says, Re'eh, look. You've told me to take these people and bring them up to the land. And you never told me who's coming with us. You said, I'm going to send some kind of an angel. I want something more. I need, I need some clarity. Go on a little bit further to verse 15. God answers Moshe in a cryptic kind of, of, of a response. Moshe comes back again in verse 15. Vayomer elav, Moshe turns to God and says, If your face is not coming with us, don't, let us, don't make us leave this place. Meaning, we're not going alone. And we're not going with an ambassador. We want you. How else? How else? What else will we have to, to signify to us that we, me, and our, and our nation, and your nation, right? What other sign are we going to have that we have some kind of special relationship? It's only if you go with us. That's what it's all about. At that point, from that point on, we will know that we are truly distinguished from all the other nations. 
Moshe is looking not to get atonement from God to say, I'm not going to destroy you. Moshe is looking for some kind of a sign, for some kind of confirmation from God that the special and unique relationship between God and the Jewish people is going to be restored. From here, there are a number of other conversations that take place. And then we have two more parashiot in the Torah. Vayakel and Pekude. For those who are familiar, you know that Vayakel and Pekude are pretty boring. Why are they boring? For two reasons. Number one, they're boring because they deal with construction. So, um, it's interesting only to architects and fabric designers, but to anybody else, it's really boring. Measurements, detail, how long it is, what it's made out of, what kind of materials to use, is boring. But the other reason why it's boring is because almost every word in those two parashiyot has already been said. Two parashiyot early in Terumah and Tetzaveh. Essentially, Terumah and Tetzaveh, which is chapters 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, is the instructions to build the Mishkan. And we're given in very clear detail every single vessel, exactly how long, how big, how wide, how high. All the the details are given to us. So if you were interested in this stuff, then you listened back in Truman Tetzave. But now you hear every one of those details repeated in Vayakel and Pakude. So much so that if you were to take a standard edition of the Chumash and open it up, like Chumash with Rashi, and you were to take a look, let's see, here's a standard edition of Chumash and Rashi. All right? So I'm going to open up at random to a page in Truma. The instructions to build the Mishkan. So you see how much text there is at the top of the page, and you see how much of Rashi's comment there is at the bottom of the page. Okay? This is Parashat Truma. Rashi has quite a bit to say about the construction of the Mishkan. Okay. Now I'm going to go to Vayakel and Pekude. Let's see how much Rashi has to say in Vayakel and Pekude. Right? It's been said already. Rashi was bored. Right? You're not going to find this anywhere else in the Chumash with possibly one exception. Right? A whole page with not a single comment at the bottom? Look at this page after page of almost nothing. It's extraordinary. So if you're bored in Vayakel Pekude, you're in good company. The question is, what's it all about? Like, why did God put it there? I heard once a, um, a beautiful parable from uh, Rav Aaron Lichtenstein, and I can't not repeat it to you. I've already given you the first half, um, but now I'm going I'm to expand on it. Boy meets girl, date, fall in love, plan a wedding... And in the planning of the wedding, they start shopping. Okay, so we're going to look for uh, linens. Okay, and they sit there, and they, she likes these linens, he likes those linens, they negotiate over the linens. Okay, those are our linens. Those are our towels. Those are our sheets, our pillowcases. Okay, um, silverware. Okay, and they negotiate over the patterns of the silverware. And then every item that they have in their house 
becomes a living representation of the relationship. Right? It's their silverware, it's their dishes, it's their linens, it's their furniture, the paint on the walls, right? the color and the, the scheme and, and the curtains, that everything there represents and symbolizes their, their relationship. And then the wedding night. And they go into their hotel room and he says, I'm going downstairs to get a bottle of champagne. And she doesn't know that he's having a hard time finding the liquor store. And she's getting bored. And uh, the butler knocks on the door. And she decides to have a quickie with the butler. And the husband walks back in and he's got his champagne. He's all excited. That's what he finds. Okay. So that obviously... This, this marriage is not going well. Uh, and he doesn't want to talk to her. He doesn't want to see her. And her friends come. And his friends come and says, Oh, she's such a great girl. Don't you know? She had a, a, a weak moment. Come. You've got to get back together. You guys love each other so much. It's, finally, he says, Okay. Okay. I'm going to swallow it. We're getting back together. And they come back into their apartment the first time in their, in their apartment together and they look at the silverware and they look at the linens and look at the furniture it doesn't quite have the same kind of meaning Vayakel Pekude is the story of the construction of the Mishkan with a big question mark hanging over it Hayesh Hashem Bekir Ayim is the presence of God going to be within us or not? We're going to build it. But we don't know if it's going to work. If you were to take a really careful look at Vayakel Pakudi on the one hand and Chumatzitzava on the other hand, you would line them up and you would find that more than 90% of the words are identical. Probably more than 95% of the words are identical. I never did the statistics. But there are some things that are changed. There are some things that are added in Vayakel and Pekude, and there are some things that are missing in Vayakel and Pekude. What's added is that over and over and over again, the phrase, Kasher Tziva Hashem et Moshe. The Jewish people are now following instructions to the T. They're not doing anything of their own. There's no initiative. It's all coming top-down. Very different from the way the story that happened in the middle was. One of the other things that's different is there's no mention whatsoever of the purpose of the Mishkan. When the Mishkan is first introduced to us, we're told, You're going to build the Aron, and the function of the Aron is for the presence of the Shekhinah to dwell amongst you. And all of that is absent in Vayakel and Pekudeh. And the people are building this and they don't know if God's going to come or not. There's this huge cloud hanging over their head. It's not until we get to the last five psukim of the book of Exodus that we actually hear anything about what happens in the end. The chapter beforehand describes how 
Everything was created, and Moshe goes and begins putting all the things in their places. He installs the Kohanim in their places. He invests them with investments. He goes and he puts the Aron where it belongs, the Mizbeach where it belongs, the Shulchan and the Menorah, all the different pieces. Everything goes in exactly the way he's supposed to do. He does the entire service the way it's supposed to happen. And at the very end, literally, it's the last five psukim of, of, of the book. Vayichas is this source number 10. Vayichas the cloud, cloud representing God, covers the Ohel Moed, it covers the tent of meeting. Uchvod Hashem Maleet HaMishkan. And the presence of God, the glory of God, fills the Mishkan to the extent that Lo Yachol Moshe Lavuel Ohel Moed. Even Moshe couldn't enter. The same Moshe that spent 40 days and 40 nights up on top of the mountain, the one who has one foot in heaven and the other one on a banana peel. Right? That same Moshe could not enter the Ohel Moed because of the intensity of the presence of God that was there. Because the cloud was there and God's presence filled it. Relief. After all that tension, six months of tension, the day that God said, I'm not going to destroy them, right, was Shiva Sarbatamuz day that God sent Moshe, the 17th of Tammuz, the, the day that Moshe came down from the mountain with the second set of tablets and said, time to start building the Mishkan, was Yom Kippur. Six months later, minus ten days, Rosh Chodesh Nisan is the inauguration of the Mishkan. That's when the presence of God comes into the Mishkan. Mishkan. When the Anan rose... Yisu b'nei Yisrael b'chol masehem. Then the Jewish people traveled. V'im lo yehaleha anan, and if the cloud did not rise, v'lo yisu ad he'aloto. Then the Jewish people didn't didn't travel until it was time for them to move. This this is an odd ending. I, I would have expected the ending to come at the end of verse thirty-five. The presence of God was there. Why? does the Torah all of a sudden begin speaking about traveling? Later on, in Sefer Bamidbar Sinai, in the book of Numbers, we have a very extensive description of the travels of the Jewish people. The first five chapters describe how the camp is organized. And later on, in Perek in, in, in Tet, chapter 9, um, we have a description of the instruction of you know, when the cloud lifts, then you go. When the cloud settles, then you stop. And, and you know, then Moshe has to blow. He has to blow the show. He has got chatzot's throat, trumpets. He blows them in certain ways to signify traveling. He blows them in other ways to signify stopping. Here we have a very detailed description of the whole process. Uh, traveling belongs in the book of Numbers. That's what the book of Numbers is all about. The travel of the Jewish people to the desert. The book of Exodus is not about that. Why take two verses that belong in the book of Numbers and stick them in here at the conclusion of the story of the Shekhinah dwelling in the Mishkan? I think it's very simple. A three-year-old boy goes to the mall with his mother. Three-year-old boys are not interested in the same things that their mothers are interested in. And she's in the mall and she's looking at different things and he's in the mall and he's looking at very different things. And at some point, she thinks she has his eye on the whole time, but at some point, they get separated. Only for about 10 seconds. 
And the boy who was sitting there looking at the train sets in this, in this window all of a sudden realizes that mommy's not there. And he's gripped by a sense of terror. There is nothing in the world that can describe that terror. She starts screaming. His mother hears the scream. She goes running across. She's only two stories down. She, but she runs. She grabs him. Okay. They go back into the mall. He's still not interested in looking at the same windows that his mother's interested in. But he's going to give her skirt the white knuckle treatment. <laughs> he's not going to let go for a second. He's terrified of losing her again. That's what I believe the Torah is describing to us at the end of the book of Exodus. The Jewish people had the presence of the Shekhinah in their fingertips. They could feel it right there. They experienced it at Har Sinai. They knew what it meant to have God in their midst. And then, uh, in a split second, they knew what it felt like to be separated from God. They knew what it like not to have God in their presence. And they were gripped with such a terror, they went into mourning. And Moshe refuses to leave God alone until God promises to come back to them. But even with that promise, they're still nervous through all of Ayakil and Pekude. And they build that Mishkan, they build that tabernacle, and they pray, they pray with every ounce of strength in their body as the presence of the Shekhinah returns to them. And finally it does. You can be sure that nobody's going to pick up their foot to leave as long as the Shekhinah is present right there. If the Shekhinah doesn't move, we don't budge. Not because they have an instruction not to budge, but if the Shekhinah, because they don't want to miss. So they probably have centuries posted 24 hours around the clock to see if the cloud lifts. And if the cloud lifts, they're going to move in a second. They're not going to wait for an instruction. They're going to organize themselves and they're going to go. And when they're traveling in the desert and they see the clouds slowing down, they're going to slow down. They don't want a separation of even a fraction of a second any more than is necessary from being close to the divine. That's the story of the second half of the book of Exodus. It's about the Jewish people seeking God. God seeking the Jewish people, but the Jewish people seeking God is the presence of God within us. What I'd like to do now, in the few minutes I have left, is to take this story and to translate this story a little bit. This is a story from a long time ago. It's a story about the Jewish people. It's not a story about individuals. It's not a story about you, about me. It's a story about a nation and a God who is tangibly very present within them. And I'd like to try to find a way to translate this into some kind of a language that, um, that could be possibly meaningful on an individual level, on a personal level. And for that, I'm going to turn to a number of different... Um, a number of different sources. And I'm going to start primarily with the Sidur. Um, if you want to take a quick look um, on page number four, source B, 
the context with uh, Rav Chaim Halevi, Rav Chaim Abrisk, uh, the grandfather of Rabbi Soloveitchik, um, the um, great fr- founder of the Brisker dynasty, um, incredibly insightful um, and in, um, an insightful mind. Um, he writes as follows. He usually starts by looking at the Rambam and finding some contradiction in the words of the Rambam and figuring out um, from nuances in the language of the Rambam or other kinds of nuances how to distinguish between them, but the nuances become deeply profound. And he writes as follows. This is one of his opening pieces. Um, I'm just going to read this in the English. It appears that there are two types of kavana, kavana, intention. Two types of kavana in prayer. One is the intention of the meaning of the words. This is similar to the necessity for kavana with other mitzvot. You have to know what you're doing. The second is the intention that one is standing before God in prayer. We've all witnessed in ourselves and possibly in others the experience of getting up to Davin and after a few minutes saying, did I say that? Yep. Well, where was I up to? You know, when I was busy thinking about and fill in the blank of what you were busy thinking about. Um, he says, the second kind of kavanah which is unique is the intention that one is standing before God in prayer. It appears that this is not like the kavanah's other mitzvot. Rather, it is the very essence of the act of prayer. When it comes to other mitzvot, there's a debate as to when, whether one needs to have kavanah, whether one needs to have intent in doing the mitzvot or not. When it comes to prayer, says Rav Chaim, we have a whole different layer of kavanah. Forget for a minute what the words mean. Do you know what you're doing right now? And if you don't sense that you are standing in front of God, then you're not even engaged in an act of prayer, regardless of whether you know what the words mean or not. You're not even engaged in an act of prayer. For if his heart is not available and he does not see himself as standing in prayer before God, this cannot even be considered an act of prayer. The kavanah of prayer is different because when it comes to prayer, it's the kavanah that defines the act. It's not the kavanah, the intention, is something external. But if, I'm, if I don't think, if I don't realize that moment that I am standing in front of God, then I am not standing in front of God. If I'm not standing in front of God, then I'm not praying. For those of you later on who want to take a look, you'll see a different formulation of this in an expanded format from Rabbi Soloveitchik's work on, on repentance. Um, that's source number C at the bottom. What I'd like to do is I'd like to use some of this in exploring two very brief passages that really serve as the core of the tefillah on Yom Kippur. In Musaf of Yom Kippur, the core of the tefillah is what's called the Avodah. It's where we reenact, we not just tell, but we reenact the, the process of the service um, of Yom Kippur, the very service that the Rambam says was the thing that acted as the, as the source of atonement when the temple stood. And now in the absence of that, we have to rely on the essence of Yom Kippur, whatever that is. And we're going to come back to that question in just a moment. Right? Um, a story that I heard many, many years ago, uh, it left a very deep impression on me. And I, I hesitate to tell the story because I don't know that I believe it. But 
I tell the story anyway, because it, it, the story itself tells a powerful message. The Rebbe of Apt, the Apta Rebbe, was apparently a Kohen. And uh, he, as a Kohen, he insisted that he would be the Chazan um, on Yom Kippur for the Avodah. And he would get to the passage where he'd say, V'cha Omer. Right? This is what he would say. This is what the Kohen Gadol, he's retelling the story. Um, but the Apta Rebbe would say, V'cha Chayiti Omer. That's the passage I want to focus on. That one and the, and the one immediately afterwards. V'cha Chaya Omer. This is what the Kohen Gadol would say as he did the process of vidui, of confession. Right? And he did a confession for himself, for his entire Shevet, all the Kohanim, and then for the entire Jewish people, and the confession was part of the process of atonement. V'cha Chaya Omer. This is what he, he would say. Ana Hashem, oh please, oh God, Chatati, Aviti, Pashati, I have transgressed, I've sinned, and there's another one in there, whatever, it's interesting, the translation over here only translates two out of the three words. He, he, it's not surprising that Hebrew has a lot of words for I'm guilty. <laughs> um, but that's what he would say. Chatati aviti pashati. I have sinned, I have violated, I have transgressed. Now, I would have expected the next word to be lecha. I have sinned to you. But that's not the next word. The next word is lefanecha. What does that mean? I have sinned in front of you. Lefanecha. And I believe that the word lefanecha is one of the key words in all of Yom Kippur. The essence of the tefillah of Yom Kippur, the essence of everything that we do on Yom Kippur is to help us come to the state where we feel like we are standing in front of God. Throughout the course of the year, we do a variety of things for a variety of reasons that violate that sense of standing before God. And the proof is that if I felt that I was standing before God, I wouldn't do any of those things. So I have violated I have violated the relationship between myself and God, just like the Jewish people did in the desert. I have violated that sense of being the fanecha. Chatati, aviti, pashati, the fanecha. I have violated the sense of being in front of you. And now, on Yom Kippur, I want to try to restore that sense of being the fanecha. When you take a look at the words in the tefillah, you're going to find this word cupping up all over. Here's one. Al tashlichenu, or al tashlicheni, mi lefanecha. Don't toss me out for feeling like I am being in front of you. There is no feeling that is worse for a human being than feeling that they are abandoned by God. Don't toss me out from feeling like I am lefanecha. You are the last hope that I have in this universe. I cannot survive without you being, without me being in your presence, without you being as part of my life. Yona. Yona runs away. He doesn't run from God. It doesn't say he runs away, mi Hashem. It says he runs away, mi lifnei Hashem. 
He runs from being in the presence of God. He doesn't want to be in the presence of God. And ultimately he realizes, as a prophet, he is always in the presence of God. Even in the belly of the fish, he's in the presence of God. There is no such thing for a prophet as not being in the presence of God. It's the story of all Yom Kippur. It's everything that we do. And I believe that this is exactly what the Tfilot of Yom Kippur are trying to accomplish. It's what the Avodah of Yom Kippur, what the Kohen Gadol used to do. It was to help, somehow or another, to help restore for the people the sense that their lives, their very existence, is right there in front of God. The Rambam talks about the goat that they would send out. But truth is, that goat that they send out is only one half of a pair. And that pair of goats represents that there are two paths our our lives can take. We can take, on the one hand, a path of, of going to the Mizbeach, a life of dedication, a life of being in the presence of God. There's no greater presence of God than being on the altar. Or we could wander aimlessly in the desert until our death. Until our absolutely meaningless death. And it is that realization that there are two different options. And only two options. It's either the aimless wandering or the being in the presence of God that restores us to the presence of God. Because nobody wants to be in the absence of the presence of God. That's what the Avodanya Makipurim and how that goat that was sent out in the wilderness brings about Kapara. Because it forces us to acknowledge that we really, really deeply do want to be in the presence of God. We want that Lifanecha. In the absence of that service, so telling the story, participating in the story, being there, being present on Yom Kippur, and being present being, being present, uh, ourselves being present on Yom Kippur is the act of kapara, is being in the presence of God itself that is purifying. I purify myself in order to bring myself there, but once I am there, it is that very presence itself that purifies me. I come back to my lifanecha. I come back to being in the presence of God. I'd like to take a look at one more passage, very briefly. It's the continuation. Right? We have the Kohen Gadol doing his vidui, doing his confessional on top of the animal. Kivayom hazeh, and listen to the line, Kivayom hazeh, on this day, Yechaper alechem letaheretchem, God will atone for you and purify you. Mikol chatotechem, from all of your sins, lifnei Hashem. That's what does it. It's the lifnei Hashem at the end. Now, we continue with the Avodah. Vahakoanim vahaam haomdim vahazara. The Kohanim are the people who are standing there in the Azara, in the courtyard of the Mikdash. When they would hear the Kohen Gadol utter the ineffable name of God, they began to hear him say it. It was a kind of thing that was one of these, it was the best kept state secret. The Kohen Gadol, and nobody else would know it, and he would transmit it to the next Kohen Gadol, nobody else would know it. And when the Kohen Gadol would recite the name of God out loud, everybody else bowed down, 
they would bow down, they'd prostrate themselves, and simultaneous to the Kohen Gadol, calling out in the name of God, they would say, Baruch Shem Kavod Effectively, they drowned him out so that they shouldn't hear him. He had to say it out loud, but they would, they would say it out loud themselves, Baruch Shem Kavod that may God's great name be, be forever. May he be blessed forever, and the preservation of the sanctity of that name came in the drowning it out so that nobody, n- n- nobody else should hear it. Well, what's it all about? Baruch Shem Kavod Mahutodi Olam Va'ed? For those who are familiar with the davening on Yom Kippur, you know that Baruch Shem Kavod Mahutodi Olam Va'ed comes up in a prominent place elsewhere in Yom Kippur. Right, we say, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. And normally, all year long, we say, Baruch Shem Kvod Machutoli Olam Ve'ed, in a quiet voice. On Yom Kippur, we say it out loud, just like they did there. What's going on? What is this Baruch Shem Kvod Machutoli? Ever bother you? Like, what's it doing there? Why do we say it out loud on Yom Kippur? And a better question, why do we say it all year long? It's not here in the Torah. You go, you open up Sefer Dvarim, chapter 5 or chapter 6, and you look up the Shema, and you're going to find it there, and there is no Baruch Shem Kavod Machu Tolilam Va'ed. He goes, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, V'yavtat, Hashem Elokecha. Right? That's it. There's no Baruch Shem Kavod Machu in there. So how did it get in there? Why do we say it quietly all year long? And why do we say it out loud on Yom Kippur? And what's the connection between all of that and our yelling it out loud and the people themselves during the time of the Beit HaMikdash yelling it out loud as the Kohen Gadol is reciting the ineffable name of God? I believe that, um, that the story of Yom Kippur teaches us about what Baruch Shem Kippur Machut is about all the rest of the year. Baruch Shem Kavod Machutod Yolam Va'ed is a response to divine revelation. I experience God and I say, I know it's a momentary experience and I want it to last forever, but it can't. The fact that my experience can't last forever doesn't mean that, that God doesn't last forever. So Baruch Shem Kavod Machutod that the name of his glorious kingdom be blessed forever and ever. I don't necessarily experience that every moment of every day. But during the moments that I do experience it, I want to acknowledge that it's not, that God, it, it's not God that changes, it's me. I'm the one who doesn't feel that, who doesn't experience it. But that's not because God's not there, it's because I'm not there. Because I'm not Lifnei Hashem. When the Kohen Gadol, at that moment, says the ineffable name, he's revealing something. It's a moment of revelation. A moment of revelation, people don't look. I remember the story of Sinai, the moment of revelation. People hid their eyes and fell backwards. They, drew, they, they, they pulled away. It was too intense. They couldn't deal with it. They said, Moshe, you talk to God. We can't handle this anymore. Baruch Shem Kavod Machotol Yolam Va'ed. Yom Kippur, the Kohen Gadol, 
says the ineffable name of God, revealing something. I don't know what it is, but there is some kind of revelation at that moment. Everybody bows down on their face. They can't look, and they yell out, Baruch Shem Kavod Machut Olam Ve'ed. Shema. Shema is an act of revelation. Not from God, but from us. Every time we say the Shema, what should be happening is we should be experiencing, experiencing a revelation of God. We're, we're stating what is the most important and fundamental tenet of what, of what Judaism is all about. Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. Baruch Shem Kavod Machu Toli Olam Va'ed. On Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur is a day of Lefanecha. On a day of Lefanecha, we say it out loud, on the day of the Fanecha, we have the option, we have the possibility of experiencing the presence of God. It's there. It's, we come primed for it. We come ready for it. We come to shul. We're expecting that. We're disappointed if it doesn't happen. We don't feel that sense of lifnei Hashem. We walk out disappointed from davening. at the top of our voices. The rest of the year we pretend. We say the Shema. We pretend that we're experiencing that. We say it quietly. We know that we should be. But we're not there. Yom Kippur is a day of Lefanecha. question that uh, was the title of, of tonight's Sheet Warv is, is the presence of God within us. Well, in Sefer Shemot, God answered the Jewish people when they asked the question on a national level. And he answered them with a Hasidic story. It's in your hands. On Yom Kippur, I pray that every one of us ask the question and rise to the occasion. And our Zoha to help establish within ourselves, to help build within ourselves that sense of being the Fanecha, that sense of being the Fnei Hashem, that sense of being the presence of God. Shana Tovah.